Hello and welcome to the Flaming Grenade Serial Podcast, where you can listen to the story of the Flaming Grenade in commute-sized podcasts. If you ever need to catch up, want to read along, or you just can't wait until the next episode, the full ebook is available on Amazon. Please consider supporting the author by purchasing the ebook. This reading is done by the author without mixing or multiple takes. Think of it as audiobook meets story time. And now, the next episode of The Flaming Grenade. Chapter 6, Mount Etna, Sicily, Italy. Giuseppe couldn't move. He noticed that the wind had picked up, a cold wind sweeping down from the bare slopes of the mountain peaks, the lip of the volcanic crater. Plastic wrappers rolled and bounced along the ground, one rolling up and over the body. The sullen colors of the dry leaves on the ground seemed to jump out at him, creating an atmosphere of death and decay. Giuseppe's mind sharpened and he mentally forced himself to focus on every detail. Rust-colored leaves turned into a glowing orange. Green shoots of grass were like neon signs. Giuseppe became aware he was shivering, and his alternate self, his normal self, absently thought he must have left his jacket in the car. It was like time had stopped. The Corpo Forestale rangers were talking next to him, although they sounded as if they were underwater. Someone laughed back by the parked cars. The noises blended together, and all he could hear clearly was the drumming of his own shallow breathing. Giuseppe wanted to scream, wanted to cry, anything to release the emotions that were building inside of him like a pressure cooker. This was not the way he had imagined it, not the way he had planned. There'd be no glory here, no career-advancing, crime-solving heroics. This was a nightmare, unreal. This was the last crime scene any officer wanted to attend to, not a case upon which to build a career. Vincenzo had managed to grope his way out of the wash, and he clasped his hands on Giuseppe's shoulder for support. This human contact broke the spell, and now in a wave of noise, the sound separated and focused into the voices of officers at the scene, the rustle of the wind in the trees, plastic wrappers crinkling and birds chirping. The marshala was no longer there. Giuseppe looked around and then turned to find the marshala back at the car, frantically holding his cell phone in the air to search for a better signal. Giuseppe wondered if it was an act, if he was creating an excuse to leave the scene. It didn't really matter. Apparently, the marshala was going to be of no assistance there on the mountainside. Giuseppe knew, despite his limited experience, that this was going to be his case, and that was not a good thing. And at that moment, Giuseppe no longer cared about the accolades or the rewards of running the case successfully. All he cared about was finding whoever or whatever did this. Tutti santi, Vincenzo whispered. Giuseppe took a deep breath, refocused his eyes, and took charge of the scene. This was certainly going to require the forensic boys from Messina. He looked over at one of the rangers. You, go tell the marshallo, ask the marshallo, to call for the forensics team and to call the Piedimonte at Neo station for backup. Si, signore, the ranger hurried off. And you, pointing to the other ranger, do you have communication in your vehicle? Yes, of course. Set up a secure channel on your radio. We cannot rely on our mobile phones up here. Right away. Enzo, are you okay? Giuseppe asked now that the rangers were out of earshot. Well, I would not say that I am okay, to be honest, but I will be fine. Tell me what to do. Giuseppe grimaced. Vincenzo was six months senior to him, but had never showed a great motivation to do more than stay in the quiet little town, do his job, and work his way through the pool of single women in town. It was awkward telling a senior officer what to do, but if Enzo was willing, Giuseppe would take charge. Giuseppe knew that the marshallo would let him run the case. If Giuseppe screwed it up, the marshallo could distance himself from the failure, and if he, and if he succeeded, then the marshallo could take all of the credit. No pressure. Okay, Enzo. 
I need you to cordon off this whole area. No one else comes in or out unless necessary, and then document every entry and exit. I don't want to create a mess of the scene like those Katze up in Perugia did with that murder trial of that American girl. Idiots. And tell the rangers that they must stay here until the forensic team arrives. Then take their statements. I want to know everything they did from the time they woke up until we arrived, especially everything they touched here at the scene. Got all that? Vincenzo nodded. While Enzo went to the car to get crime scene tape, Giuseppe was alone with the body. He relaxed his shoulders, knowing he could let down his stoic shield for just a moment. She had been a beautiful woman. Liliana Moretti was an instructor at the Carabinieri Academy, her good looks belying her professionalism and toughness. Inevitably, the new recruits would all have crushes on their beautiful instructor, and when she sharply refused any advances on their part, they retaliated by making lewd jokes. Oh, did they regret that. In every class, she made at least one of the new recruits cry and quit the academy. She was tough, hard as nails, and knew more about the service than anyone Giuseppe had ever met. She was one in a long line of Moretti Carabinieri officers. The other instructors always deferred to her judgment and showed her great professional respect. And in Italy, a still very male-dominated society, that was impressive. The great Moretti had been reduced to a mangled shell, a mortal body of flesh and blood like any other. Her ears were gone, not cut off, but ripped away from her flesh. Her lips had been crudely sewn shut with a thick black thread. But the worst was the eyes. They were gone. Only grotesque, bloody sockets, like the eyes that look outward, were removed so that an outsider would be able to see into her thoughts. If only he could look into her thoughts now, or at least see what she last saw. At first, Giuseppe thought of every new recruit she had shamed that may harbor a desire for vengeance. It was a long list of suspects, but no, only a handful of people on the earth would be able to do this to another human being. It was the work of a monster. Moretti was wearing her uniform, which was odd. Usually, if an officer was visiting another district, especially in an official capacity, he or she would notify the local station as a professional courtesy. If she was here on holiday, then of course she wouldn't have notified them, but wouldn't have been in uniform either. Giuseppe squatted down, his heels slightly off the ground. He wanted to get a closer look without touching the body or disturbing any potential evidence. One arm was awkwardly positioned under her body, but the other was outstretched, reaching towards the wash and the road beyond. Her dark hair was entangled with leaves and branches, fallen out of the customary bun she wore when in uniform. The skin on her wrists and ankles was an angry red, burned raw by a rough rope. Dried blood stained her hands. Her shoes were gone, and Giuseppe noticed her toenails were painted a cheerful red. The sight of the carefully painted nails shocked him. Officer Moretti's two-pointed uniform hat was lying on the ground about a meter from the body. Giuseppe carefully walked over to it and leaned down for a closer look. The dark cap was stained darker on the sides with dried, crusted blood. The front of the cap was blank. Where the Carabinieri flaming grenade badge had been was only an outline of slightly darker fabric. Giuseppe bit his lip and tasted blood. Chapter 7, Half Moon Bay, California Zyra Marshall was starting to worry. Archie hadn't called, emailed, or texted since he called yesterday morning on his way to work. Yes, he used his cell phone while driving, and that was a big no-no these days, but in his defense, he had a Bluetooth hands-free thingy hooked up to his stereo, so it didn't really count. Zyra knew Archie was really busy at work, and was trying to finish up on a few projects before their wedding and honeymoon in a week. But it was extremely unlike him not to take a few moments to at least call her and wish her a good night. Zyra didn't want to overreact and be the suffocating fiancé, who had to know where he was at every moment of the day. She truly trusted Archie and knew he would have a good reason. Zara was, if she was being honest, a bit angry at Archie, and that made her feel guilty. 
She began to worry that she had done or said something that may have upset him. Get a grip, Z, she said to herself. It had been a whirlwind romance, at least in Zyra's experience. Six months ago, Zyra and Archie were both casually dating someone else when they met at, of all places, a birthday party for Emily, a mutual friend. Zyra found out later that after she left the party, Archie had cornered Emily in the kitchen and asked about her. Emily had smiled, being the subtle matchmaker she thought herself to be, and then forced Archie to beg just to get Zyra's number. At least that was Emily's story. Archie claimed she practically shoved Zyra's number into his pocket. Emily could be a bit devious, it was true. Both of them, it seemed, were dating for comfort and convenience and were both happy to find someone new. When the phone rang two days later, Zyra knew it was Archie, even as she reached to pick up the phone. It's not like she had sat by the phone hoping the guy from the party would call, even though they hadn't really even talked. She just knew. Archie had been a bit shy as he tried to explain to her who he was. Zyra had laughed. Archie stopped mid-sentence. What's so funny? I know who you are, silly. What took you so long to call? Zyra teased. They had spent the next day at the beach trying to get a rainbow kite to stay airborne for more than 30 seconds. When it finally plunged into a breaking wave like a German Messerschmitt dive-bombing an American submarine, they gave up and flopped down in the sand laughing. laughing. This is the professionals one can find near Pier 39 in San Francisco, doing all sorts of tricks with fancy kites. When they caught their breath, there was a moment of silent pause, and Zyra had leaned in and gently kissed Archie. Of course, if Archie was telling the story, he is the one that initiated that first kiss, and Zyra wouldn't correct him. She knew the truth, and that was good enough. Zyra had never kissed a boy on the first date. It was one of her unbending rules of romance. But it was right, and just happened. They had at least talked once a day, even if they weren't able to get together for lunch, to play a game, watch a movie, or go for a walk. Sometimes Zyra would meet Archie at the bench just outside of his office building with his favorite, a salami sandwich, where they would sit and talk and watch the small sliver of the Pacific, just visible through a pedestrian access alley to the beach. Yesterday had been a first. It was Archie's turn to call, and Zyra didn't want to seem pushy. Zyra had waited past the hour Archie would have normally been delayed at work, and ended up falling asleep reading a novel on her favorite chair, under a throw blanket her grandmother had made for her. Their relationship had been so good, Zyra knew Archie was bound to forget once in a while, and she couldn't blame him for that. She felt lucky to have him and couldn't wait to officially tie the knot. Zyra worried that maybe Archie was getting cold feet. Their wedding was just over a week away, and he had seemed a bit exasperated with all of the wedding plans and details. He tried to be helpful, but he really didn't seem to care if the tablecloths were linen or lace, white or red. Well, Zyra thought he was a man after all, a good-looking one at that. He told Zyra he just wanted her to be happy and to decorate however she wanted. It would have been nice to get some input, but Zyra believed Archie genuinely wanted whatever made her happy. Today it was Zyra's turn to plan their evening. She had planned something special, something that had nothing whatsoever to do with cake designs, announcement cards, or wedding singers. Zyra had arranged for some of her friends to lay out the picnic dinner she had prepared on the beach, along with wood and matches for a fire after the sun set over the horizon. Zyra called Emily for the tenth time to ensure everything was ready. Geez, girl, Emily said, it's like this is your first date or something. Stop worrying. Just text me when you're about ready to leave and we will hurry out to the beach to set up. Okay, sorry. Thanks, Em. I just wanted to make sure this is a relaxing night for him. I'll text you. Zyra grabbed her purse from a dining room chair where she had dropped it after work and walked out of the front door. She had inherited a small bungalow in town from her grandmother after she passed away a few years ago. It was worth a fortune now, but her grandparents had bought it for next to nothing right after he got home from the war in Europe. Zyra's grandfather had served in the Devil's Brigade in Italy, the first special service force created to undertake special operations in Europe. While fighting their way to Rome, Sergeant Jason Marshall's life changed abruptly when an Italian soldier stepped timidly out from the shelter of a bombed-out barn and sent Jason to deliver an important message. 
important package to Zyra's namesake, the soldier's sister. It was love at first sight, and when Sergeant Marshall's tour of duty ended, he married Zyra, and they eventually moved back to the States, settling in the quiet town of Half Moon Bay, California. Zyra unlocked the door of her three-year-old blue Honda Civic and headed across town to Archie's apartment complex. The drive only took ten minutes, and she pulled into the apartment parking lot. Archie's truck was not his normal, not in his normal parking spot. That's strange, Zyra said to the steering wheel. She decided to pull into the spot herself. She locked her car doors and walked up the building stairs to Archie's door. She had a key, but always knocked first. After all, even though they were engaged, it wasn't her house. After waiting for what seemed like five minutes, but was probably only ten seconds, Zyra searched through her purse to find the apartment key. If Archie was home, he was probably in the shower getting ready and hadn't heard the knock. As the door opened, Zyra scrunched her nose. It smelled horrible. What in the world? Chapter 8, Half Moon Bay, California It was like being in a muddy men's locker room after a rain-soaked rugby match. Archie, for a long-time bachelor, was actually a pretty clean guy. Granted, his habits had improved with some subtle training from Zyra. Not nagging, mind you, just helpful suggestions. She had promised herself to never become the nagging wife. Even so, the first time she had visited Archie's apartment had been a pleasant surprise. He could have used a dusting and the dishes weren't completely done, but other than that, it passed inspection. Sarah gin gingerly placed her purse on the table near the front door. Mud and pine needles covered the hardwood floors and the rug under the coffee table. Archie, are you home? That's when she saw him sprawled out on the floor, lying flat on his belly. His jeans were filthy, as were his shoes. His mouth was wide open and drool puddled around his open mouth. Zyra rolled her eyes. What a mess! Archie, wake up! He didn't move. Zyra felt her heart skip a beat in a twinge of worry. Archie? Her voice cracked. No answer. She rushed across the room and dropped to her knees, oblivious to the pain when her knee struck the hardwood. She put both hands on Archie's back and shook. Archie, come on, wake up! This is not funny! Archie groaned. What? he complained. Archie coughed and blinked his eyes. He rolled onto his back and looked around the room. Chapter 9, Half Moon Bay, California I heard her voice but couldn't seem to answer at first. It was like before. My eyelids were heavy and my mouth was dry and I felt like I was climbing up out of a dark tunnel but the top never seemed to get any closer. Oh, how my mouth was dry. Sand made for a good afternoon snack until you had to drink or swallow. I heard a thud and then I was being shaken violently. I raised my head and forced myself to turn over. Oh man, I hurt all over. I couldn't remember ever submitting my resume for a job as a punching bag but I must have been hired anyway. I hoped I got a t lot of tips. My eyes came into focus and I looked around, trying not to make any sudden movements. What I saw was good. Zyra, my fiance, was kneeling next to me. Water! It came out as more of a croak. She jumped up and rushed to the kitchen. I was in my living room, my current living room this time, it seemed, but as before, the floor was covered in needles and dirt. Not again! I touched the floor with my finger and swiped. Nothing happened. I wiped my hands on my dirty jeans and tried again. Nope. I was still sitting on my living room floor. Thank goodness. It must just be a dirty floor. Zyra entered the room and stopped short. What are you doing? I scrambled for an answer. Nothing, nothing. You know, just stretching. I began to stretch and knew she didn't quite buy it. But that was the least of her questions. I had to ask, what day is it? Tuesday evening, silly. We have a date, remember? Hey, and you never called me last night, she asked, surveying the mess of my living room. Where were you? I didn't answer as I suddenly remembered. I reached into my pocket and it was still there. I pulled out the badge, brushing pocket lip from the pointed edges. What is that? Zara reached out for the badge. I slowly pulled myself into a sitting position. I handed it over to her. 
I don't know. I found it. Wait, have you been in my up in my attic? What have you been doing going through my stuff? Zara seemed angry now. I held up my hands at her, still aching all over. Z, I don't know what you're talking about. Your attic? What? I found this out in the woods. No, this is my grandfather's. I remember seeing it in his old footlocker from the war. The war? I scooted over in front of the couch and leaned back, my head resting against the cushion, and I looked up at the slowly rotating ceiling fan. Yes, he got this when he was in Italy. You know, at the same time he met Grandma. I used to look at this when I was a little girl and ask him to tell me the story of how they met. I closed my eyes and tried to get the pounding in my head to stop. I needed to focus, use the small number of active brain cells I had to figure out what in the hell was happening. The war. This time it wasn't a question. I just didn't know what else to say. Archie, are you okay? Now she didn't seem so much angry, but worried. She sat down on the floor next to me and brushed the hair from my forehead. Talk to me, sweetie. What can I do? My head snapped up. Ow, that hurt. I need to shower, and then we're going to your house to look in that footlocker. I had to know if they were the same. But when she saw my look of determination, she decided not to argue. Thank you for listening to episode three of The Flaming Grenade. Please subscribe to the podcast so that you will be ready to listen to episode four as soon as it comes out.